I was standing on the sixth platform and I was crying and I was pretty close to the edge. This woman just put her arms around me. She just hugged me. She didn't speak English. I had no idea what she was saying, but she just like hugged me. And then when the train came, she just pulled me into the train. It was like she was sent by the universe or something. <laughs> My name is Sean, and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives, and we almost never talk about it. We certainly don't talk about it enough, and when we do, most of us are not very good at it, including me. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. Keep in mind, less shitty and less alone is essentially our tagline, if you will. If you're listening to this, you probably know what I mean. A couple quick notes before we jump in. You can comment on an episode on Spotify. You just have to hit the show notes. And you can leave a rating and review on Apple. Both help. For my attempt survivors I've talked with, I will be reaching out. I want to get a series of updates if you're game. To our members, remember we're going to be starting a new series. Of course, I'll be reaching out to you. Where small groups of us get together and answer a few questions, ideally from our audience. There is one more thing I am thinking about doing for those of you who hear this and for those of you who want to share, but maybe uh, you don't want to talk with me about it at length. There are a couple of things you can do. Check the show notes to learn how you can send us an audio message. That's one way we can get you on the podcast so people can hear you and you can use your name or not. And the other thing, and then boy, oh boy, Sean, let's get on with it. I'm thinking about doing something where if you write me sort of standard email kind of thing, I can read it on the air. Anyway, clearly I'm exploring different ideas to get more people involved. Okay, if you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted and check the show notes to learn more, please, about the podcast. Finally, we're talking about Suicide Noted here, as we always do, and we don't hold back. So take that into account before you listen or as you listen, but I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Kate. Kate lives in New York City, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hello, Kate, in New York City. Am I calling you Kate? Yeah. Only the cops and people like that call me Catherine. I'm from New York. So the moment there's New York, I'm like, let's just not even talk about suicide. Let's just talk about <laughs> it. Can I share with the audience what you sent me on that email? Or uh... Yeah, sure. Kate is, well, obviously you're going to do most of the talking, hopefully. But I wanted to let everyone know, uh, suicide attempt survivor, uh, which is common because that's essentially who I attract. That's what the conversations are about. Uh, also a suicide loss survivor. And of course, there's obviously a lot more to you and we'll get to it, but the uh, director, I think is your title? Yeah. Of New Alternatives New York City. And we'll save exactly what that is and all the good shit you're doing. Uh, But I do want to talk about that because there are some people that listen and some of them might be near you. Mm -hmm. Or maybe maybe there are other services you do online and they can be in Kentucky or Korea. I don't know. Uh, But I am wondering, as you sit there, probably just finishing up work, though maybe you have more work later, that's why there's a huge Red Bull next to you in your office with lots of stuff behind you, lots of stuff. Because when you run something, there's just stuff. And we're just, we don't have enough space. Like, you know, my assistant sits in the same office. Yeah. I could just hand her something across the room. We're so close. you know. Right. You do the work you do, help save people. You know who does have enough space? Goldman Sachs. Oh, yes. Yeah. I bet they have huge amounts of space. Uh, There is irony always. Uh, How did you find a podcast called Suicide Noted? Probably like most other people do. You know, I was just having a hard time and I was I was just like, I'm tired of this. Like, is there a way like I was kind of looking for, you know, people have any solutions or suggestions or whatever. Were you suicidal, however you define that at the time or just like um, whatever? 
Yeah, I mean, I was just getting overwhelmed by the thoughts and I was like, well, but I was also really just tired of them because, you know, like I dealt with them for a long time and I'm like, will you guys like shut up? And, you know, not that they're actual voices, but, you know. Fucking exhausting. Yeah, and it sometimes just gets in the way, like you're trying to concentrate and all you can think about is, you know, like, you know, you keep having these like, it's just distracting. And you're literally the director of a, of a nonprofit. I am. I'm not taking anything away from people who aren't in that role and are going about their days at all. But when you are the director of a nonprofit, and what else? I'm the founder, actually. That just takes mental energy, and you have responsibilities, and you have other things. And yeah, yeah I have so, to raise the budget. You know, I raise half a million dollars a year to keep this place open. It's a lot of it's a lot of pressure. And I wonder sometimes it's a, a kind of a blessing because hey, you got to stay busy, and so those thoughts aren't as prevalent. Oh yeah, you're alone all Definitely. the time. Yeah. Like I, I work a lot and people are like, why don't you do something fun? And I'm like, first of all, nothing that used to be fun is fun anymore. It's just like, eh, you know, so I'm like, why bother? But then also it does like keep like I have almost like two ways of being, you know, I have my work self, which is very like, you know, if I'm speaking to the press or to the city council or whatever, meeting with clients, it's very like together and People give me all these awards and stuff, and I'm just like, you have no idea who I actually am, you know? Because I have this other side that's just, like, really sad, mm. sometimes kind of out of control. And I just try to keep them really separate. I bet there's a few people out there who see it. Yeah, sometimes, especially people who go through it themselves. I mean, I think people know that I have, that I'm very connected to the clients and that I can connect to people who are having a hard time. Mm -hmm. And some people understand that in order to do that you have to be able to understand what it feels like even if it's not the same pain you know like i can be listening to a person and we're getting this flood of migrants and some of them are lgbt young adults escaping from countries where they could be killed etc so you know i can be listening to someone telling me about being tortured in immigration detention on their way here and i've never experienced that but i can feel it yeah. It lets me connect and it makes people um, more willing right. to talk to me. And I think there's a word for that. I think we, I think the word is empathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Do you know who starts, in my, of course, this has always been my opinion, organizations like yours, you know, you know who does that? People with empathy. That's true. I don't know what other skills they have. And I know it's really fucking hard. It's also, though, I think it's partly my activist self because... I have trouble working places where like things are wrong. You know what I mean? I'm just like, like my last job, I was running a shelter for the same population, but we were um, part of a church and the pastor was a nutcase and I didn't have complete autonomy. And sometimes she'd want things that I knew were not good for the clients. And that was really bad. She also treated this, all of us really badly. And um, that was really bad. Like I used to leave there at like, one or two in the morning because I'd wait till all the clients were in bed, you know, and that's the the sweet part of the job is like knowing that at least for one night, this room full of young people is warm and safe and fed, you know, that's a really good feeling. But then I'd leave there and on the way to the train, I'd start thinking about the bigger picture and the money she wanted me to raise and all this crap. And then by the time I got to the subway, I'd be standing there on the edge like, don't jump, you know, and just have to like hold on to something. Night, yeah, you know, I did that for like many nights. Do you know why you never jumped? I do. Um, a childhood friend of mine uh, was one the kid who was always obsessed with the trains, and he got his dream job. He's a he's a motorman on the subway, and you know he's told me about how afraid he is of people jumping and how you know that's destroyed some of his colleagues. Yeah. I made an assumption there that you hadn't jumped, but I, I was correct. Mm -hmm. um, but you have attempted, which we will get to soon mm -hmm. enough. So that was not method. There was another method yeah. or, or methods. Very curious about how people, when they're on the precipice, what kind of holds them back. Mm -hmm. Somehow, in some ways, even more than why they did it. If they survive, obviously, I, I will never know if they didn't survive. We can't talk. It's like, and how close we get and what pulls us back. And do we regret that choice? And it comes up a lot in these conversations. Um, yeah, it's kind of like what's tying you to life, to the planet. You know, it's kind of like 
a string and the more strings you cut, the closer you get, you know? Yeah. You need at least one. Does your, uh, battles or challenges with the things that led you to attempt at least once, in addition to losing somebody very dear to you, uh, does that have a direct or somewhat direct connection to this organization you founded? I mean, kind of, I got, um, I got, uh, snatched by child welfare as a young teenager bouncing around and they, uh, you know, when you're a teenager, foster parents don't want you. So they just stick you in a group home, you know, bouncing through that. I escaped, I ran away and, uh, you know, so I know what it's like to be on the subway and just have no place you're actually going. And those, that's the population you primarily work with? Yeah, I mean, our, our young people are all either homeless or in shelters or in some kind of precarious situation with their housing. Almost all LGBTQ. We occasionally get a client who, you know, identifies as like a straight ally. Almost all the clients come because the other clients find them. And so, you know, three kids will check in and then they'll be like, oh, here, we brought so-and-so, you know. So sometimes we get a straight kid who's just like kind of in the group. <laughs> they don't wow. mind, we don't mind, you know. Yeah, no, I mean... Sure. Noble, noble work, man. For real. Like, wow. Tough city, hard work, grind, man. It's getting harder because of the, um, you know, when I started out, which was like maybe 25 years ago, if you could get a client on disability, which you could do pretty fast back then, they could rent a room. And now you can't, you can't rent a shoebox for what disability pays in New York City. So, I mean, the city's giving out um, a lot of housing vouchers, but landlords won't take them. It's illegal for them not to take them, but how do you prove it? And who's going to go after them? I almost want to get a grant just to hire a lawyer to do those cases. Yeah. I mean, and in the meantime, the person's homeless. Right. Or, you know, quasi homeless or living like in a shelter being harassed by the other people. I mean, you know, you can go through. I mean, we do the applications for supportive housing, but it's crazy because, you know, there are so many people, you know, with chronic mental illness looking for housing and then. Each place gets a hundred applications a month, and you know. And then the time it takes for all this to happen. Yeah, it can be like a year while some. Right, it's just so failed, and I know that's almost cliche to say at this point, but it's an understatement, and it goes beyond this. I mean, when when I think about the support for people who are struggling to such a degree that they've tried to take your life, and then you have these conversations and you hear what they've gone through, and I know that I have a sort of self-selected group of people. I don't necessarily represent everybody at all. But you have 200 conversations, you're like, there's just a lot of failure all around here. You just, you just can't even argue it. Yeah, it's tremendously frustrating, you know, because you have to fight every single system that's supposed to help the clients. Like right now, legal aid is suing food stamps here in New York because they're taking so long to process the applications. They're past the legal limit. I mean, like, what the fuck? You know, people have to uh, eat. Yeah, I mean, there's a few basics, right? And you got if you don't support that, then you are a um, a culture or a civilization that is, in my mind, a failed state in any metric that matters to me. Totally, and also, Period. you know, I mean, this is capitalism. This is capitalism taken to the end of the line. You know, this is what it is. It's just simply a land for rich people. That's just all it is. Yeah, especially I mean, New York City. That's what yeah. they're going for. Like the mayors are taking money from the real estate industry, and so. They're not motivated to like put caps on what they can charge for rent or anything like that. Well, I didn't, you know, in my nonlinear way of doing things, I didn't even thank you. So thank you for joining me. Sure. How old were you, if you recall, exact age does not matter, when you first started thinking, let's say even somewhat seriously about suicide? I think I was in junior high school. I think that's not uncommon. Junior high school was just kind of miserable. And I was the editor of the school paper. And then I found out that it was being censored. And then my friend and I started an underground paper. And yes, and then we got in trouble, of course. But anyway, you know, that was that wasn't a bad that was like the best thing about junior high, but like classes and stuff were bullshit. So the teachers used to always be like, you have a cloud over your head. Like, what the fuck is that? You know, and this is in Brooklyn. Well, the junior high school I went to was in Park Slope. Yeah, I mean, I lived in Red Hook, but they, you know, the schools were so, are so segregated that as a white person, I got shuffled to Park Slope. Were you already in the um, foster system at that point? No, not yet. Okay, so things are hard and you are ideating, yeah? 
trying to remember. It's a long time now, but I don't know how it got to the guidance counselor, but they like called me in and were like asking me all these questions. And, you know, I was a kid. I didn't know that it wasn't safe to talk to this person. I said yes when he asked me if I was thinking about killing myself. And boy, was that a mistake. Because then he was like, I have to call your mother. And like, I was terrified of my mother. So I left school at the end of the day. And I'm like, I can't go home. I can't go home. And it was just like, that was definitely a moment where you just want to end things. Like, can't face the world anymore, you know? Interesting in that you had the, let's say, courage, to be honest. And his his or her hands are somewhat tied. I know there are rules they have to follow or they get in trouble. It's a whole systemic thing. Yeah, I mean, I know that now. But then he thinks he's helping, but you're scared to death of your mom, which makes you, let's say, even more likely to potentially end it. All right, well, okay. Now we're starting to move towards something that I think is logical. Maybe that's the wrong word, but in my brain... The weird, I guess I'm the weird guy who started this podcast too. So I'm not like everyone, others, but what stops you from, did you, well, let me ask you this. Did you try that day? No, you know, I was like wandering around <laughs> thinking about it. And then I was, the thing that kind of kept me here is that I had a dog, mm-hmm. you know, I had wanted a dog like my whole life. My mother, when I was little, kept saying, when you're 12, when you're 12. And she thought I'd forget. But as a little kid, I would introduce myself to everyone in the neighborhood, like, Hi, I'm Kate, and when I'm 12, I'm getting a dog. So, um, you know, as I got to be 12, everyone starts talking to my mom about the dog, and she's like, shit, I have to do it. So so I had this dog, and I was like, I can't leave her with them, you know. What kind of dog? Who knows? She was a bite dog. Okay. Kind of like maybe she looked kind of chihuahua-ish, but she was too big and had some beagle features kind of added on. But she was yours? She was mine, and she was, you know, very, very attached imagine it goes both ways oh yeah yeah dogs man i mean a lot of animals but dogs in particular so you're in junior high you get to high school i know things are hairy for you because the moment you mentioned the word foster home system like it's that's not smooth yeah that was horrible they took me to king's county it wasn't even my own caseworker because he was a guy so handed me off to a woman because what they do is they strip off all your clothes And they get a uh, Polaroid and they just start shooting pictures of anything. It's really, really disturbing. And and in this case, they like used the camera wrong and had to do it a second time. Sometimes when people use proper nouns, I want to make sure Kings County is is Brooklyn. It's the public hospital in Brooklyn. Yeah. So it's crazy over there. Yeah. I mean, we know know what what most public hospitals are like and dirty and shitty and mean and They just let one of my clients die, like maybe a month ago. She was trans and she had a, you know, she had heart failure and her legs and feet swelled up and then her skin kept opening up and then she'd get infections. And the first couple times, you know, they treated them. But then that last time she went into the ER and they were so overcrowded and crazy that they didn't notice that she was developing sepsis. Same hospital. Wow. When do your... um let's call them ideations, you're thinking about it, turn into something more dangerous or... So my first like real job <laughs> after college was working with teen felons in an alternative to incarceration program. All the stuff you're doing, this has been your life, mm-hmm. like from early on. Yeah, I mean, I joined ACT UP and when I was 15, started getting arrested, protesting about aid stuff, you know. Wow. Go to college. What college, may I ask? I went to Hampshire. So no grades. You can do what you want. You know, these are the bad years of AIDS, right? So my people from ACT UP were, a lot of them were dying, and they would let me come back to the city, you know, and we would do, like, political funerals, or we threw the ashes of people who died of AIDS over the White House fence. I'm not uh, going to ask you this question, but it's a question I thought about, which is, given what you shared already, and I know there's a lot more to this story, I wonder how many people that you are, let's say, close to in your life have died. And I know it's not a small number. Not at all. Like, I could, you know, make a long list. And it just keeps happening. Like, I have a memorial service later tonight. Wow. Because a couple days ago, like, a really well-known trans activist died just unexpectedly in her sleep. Mm. And, like, last week, one of the early ACT UP people who, um, they would do needle exchange in the street while it was illegal. 
they got arrested and then they went to trial and that trial made needle exchange legal in New York. So Kathy was um, part of that. And, you know, we just got a message over the ACT UP alumni group last week that she had ended her life. I mean, it's open season on trans people politically right now. And that's a lot to take in, you know. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, trans suicide rates are sky high. Some people did this cool thing, though. They started a hotline just for trans people, the trans lifeline. Yeah. Oh, I think that's the one that doesn't get certain kinds of funding. So that means I could be wrong. So that means they aren't required to do the bullshit. Exactly. We're we're kind of the same way. Like we don't take, we don't have any government funding here. My center's all private donations and grants and selling t-shirts and whatever else, you know. Good for them, that lifeline. Is that something you want to include in the notes? Maybe the number? Yeah, sure. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I mean, you never know who sees it and boom. Is a uh, movie I saw not too too long a documentary some kind of a group up in Quebec somewhere. Yeah, they get to talk to people, kind of like I am. I mean, they're probably better at it because I'm not really in that quite quite that role, and they don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. I, I think they can do something, right? Yeah, they don't have to, you know. And it's such a goddamn awful experience to to wind up in a psych ER. It's just like, mm. I mean, I've been to jail a lot, yeah. and there it's really similar. Yeah, it's astounding, really. Like, that's just the best word, and it's not the right word. Yeah, I mean, like, why do they have to have clanging doors just like Rikers Island? Like, what the fuck, you know? I don't even know why they need clanging doors in Rikers Island, but that's whole, that's another podcast, right. too. But, like, yeah, I mean, you could literally argue it should be, like, almost everything they're doing. Not everything, but almost is just do the opposite, and you're going to have better results. Yeah. Like, literally, if you're confused, clanging doors, all right, what's the opposite of that? Cushion doors, better idea. Yeah, no, you could totally redesign. Just the architecture would be an improvement, you know. Among so many other things. So you, so when when it when is it that you get tired enough, confused enough, depressed enough, this enough, that enough, where you attempt? Bad with chronology, but it was either two thousand and one or two thousand and two. My mother had died in ninety nine. Mm-hmm. So I was living alone in the house they had bought for her with all her stuff. And it took me like six months to even realize I could turn off the radio because it had been playing my whole life. She always had classical music playing and I was just so used to it that I was like, wait, I could turn this off, you know? But um, it was very much her space and it was like, it's in Bay Ridge, okay? Yeah. So far away from, you know, I always worked in Manhattan. You know, I still live there. So so for our listeners, non-New Yorkers, uh, Bay Ridge is a part of Brooklyn, but it's on the lower or southern sort of area. So however you're getting to Manhattan, typically subway, if you can, it's still probably a solid hour. Hour and a half to here. Yeah. 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 So and then you're grinding and it's usually crowded and, you know, all that. Yep. Plus, it's politically very conservative, which is not ideal for me. Right. And this long commute and you ain't getting rich. That I know. In fact, I call it my inverse career because every job I've taken, I've kind of made less. <laughs> Doing more and more good work, but... The yeah. first year we, we started New Alternative, I didn't take a salary at all because we were starting, we didn't have anything, you know, so the first year was just like fundraising and stuff. I was kind of babysitting my dad at the same time because he had dementia. So I'd sit at his table and in between answering, what time is it? I would... um fundraise and write grants and all that stuff and that's how we got going what what year was that 15 years ago this is mm. our 15th anniversary congratulations but, yeah i always say if i'd had a baby instead of an organization they would be in high school you asked me when i finally uh got around to trying and i so it was 2001 or 2002 i decided to ask my very conservative grandfather who owned the house uh, if we could sell and I could move into something sort of more appropriate for me, you know, closer to where I needed to be and maybe like away from the conservatives and tell him that, but just stuff like that. Cause the house was just not, and it was full of basically my mother's ghost. Right. So I just wanted to get the fuck out of there. I wrote him a very formal kind of proposal. And I said, look, you know, I have friends who are engineers and whatnot. You know, I went to Stuyvesant. So I know all these people who are like. Stuyvesant is a, is one of the best high schools. Uh, it be beyond New York, but in New York City. But it's public, but it's really hard to get into. It's got a very good, I believe it still has a very good reputation. Yeah, it does. There's a big controversy over the test now uh-huh. about whether it's fair to 
people from different backgrounds. Yep. A real question. So I wrote him this proposal and I said, look, you know, my friends are engineers. They can check out a house like you don't have to come out here because he was, you know, in his late 80s, probably then, you know, and I laid it out because he was like super logical, like, you know, Spock kind of guy. And so <laughs> he wrote me back this letter that basically said, suck it up. You know, like when I was young, you know, I had to the, all that shit. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and I have almost no family. Right. So my mother was already gone. My father, my birth father had died when I was in college. I had just my grandparents and one sort of remote uncle. So I just felt very alone and I felt very trapped and just unsupported. And I just lost it. Like I just got so overwhelmed. I went upstairs and I had some medicine that was left from my mother's cancer, you know, like her pain meds, opioids. She had taken some of them. And I just remember thinking, these are for pain and I'm in a hell of a lot of pain. And I just swallowed them all and went to bed. It was a three-day weekend. I remember thinking, it's a three-day weekend, so I have an extra day when nobody's going to miss me. You know what I mean? I woke up maybe a day and a half later, like super sick, like the floor was tilting. And I was just like, all right, I'm going to tell them I have the flu, you know, just like people at work, like if I had to call out. And then, crazily enough, I guess it was it was the 4th of July weekend, so there was something going on near me in the harbor, like giant boats, you know, some patriotic thing and my friends from the church ladies for choice which also might need some explanation right so you know it's a mostly drag group mostly men but a few women and we dress up like church ladies and we go and we support people doing like clinic escorts at abortion clinics and like we face off against the the right wingers who want to blow up the clinics and stuff wow you know we we got fun gigs too like we we got to perform at cbgb once for a uh, a benefit for something and then we always sing for the dyke march every year things like that it's a day before pride they they decided they wanted to come to bay ridge to see the ships the church ladies like all 12 of them or something so i'm just like totally sick and i'm like how am i going to get through this without them noticing that i'm like teetering then my dad pops up because he wanted to see the ships too i'm like what is happening here and so you know, I just drank a whole bunch of water. I was like, maybe I can dilute this shit, you know, and um, went off with them. And there's this picture someone took of me and my dad with the Verrazano right in the background. And I'm standing there like looking like a complete zombie, like I'm going to fall right over. And but my dad was mostly blind. So, of course, he didn't notice. So you live. I did. That was over 20 years ago. Yeah. And it's been like just a, a thing where every now and then it just gets too intense and it's like you know when i was at sylvia's it was standing on the edge when i was at cases my last year there and i loved that job i loved working with teen felons but it was very what sucked is that i could see people making progress but if they came up positive for weed or something the judges would send them back to jail they didn't care about progress in any other so that was really hard you know or just other stuff like you know running into the cops again and then that's contact and then blah 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 but my last year, like, I just fell into this, like, hole, and I, I was on the sixth floor. My office had a window for almost, like, a year, I think. I sat there thinking about, okay, if I climb on the filing cabinet and then put one foot on the windowsill and then open, you know, I had, like, these steps. And then I was, like, there was also a stairwell, and I used to go, nobody took the stairs, you know. I would go in there, and I would, um, I would take crying breaks, you know, just try to cry it out and then go back to work and um that stairwell had a window too and i'd be like maybe this one's better than my office people are less likely to notice and the stairwell would have been more like a little bit more uh athletic because you you had a little more like climbing and stuff to do but i was much younger then so i could have done it and but what stopped me was they were doing construction right outside and there was no uh pavement there and i was like if i jump and i land on the dirt yeah it's softer than concrete and i'm like what if i yeah, yeah you know yeah. and i checked out roof access but i couldn't get to the roof so i was just like but i was so i just and then i was like cutting a lot and cutting when you're a grown-up is like especially if you're in a responsible job it's like very you really have to hide so then i'm wearing like jackets and long sleeves and everything and this colleague of mine who is she is an art therapist and she's like what the hell's going on you know because we used to co-lead groups and stuff. 
I knew people were starting to talk, like, because people, I think, noticed my crying breaks and whatnot, you know. And finally, she kind of cornered me and was like, look, you know, you, you have to see a therapist. And I was like, okay, you know, my last experience of therapy had been like forced therapy, you know, foster care, which is a whole different animal. So she sent me to this woman who was a, um, a hub, like she sort of assesses people and then farms them out to art therapists around the city. I had been doing this thing called a visual journal where you draw a self-portrait pretty much every day. Uh -huh. Mine, of course, were like disturbing. And um, I brought them along and she looked at them and she was kind of like, well, if I send you to a therapist, you have to promise not to commit suicide. And she's like, well, you know, because it's just really hard for therapists when people do that. So she was like, promise and I'll send you to a therapist or I can call an ambulance right now. This is what happens when you're honest. Yes. Even if you're honest through drawings. Yes. Promise not to do it. Or we're taking you in an ambulance. Like, think about that, motherfucker. What the? Mm. Yeah. By then, wound up leaving. I, I was just so screwed up at that point. And one day, my boss, who was really cool, we were close, sat in, in the client chair in my office. And I just looked at him and I was like, Joe, you know, I can't, I can't stay. And he was like, yeah, I know. Because of what you're going through? Yeah, because I was just too, wow, just remembering that is hard. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. We can almost treat this as that like the same space that you used to cry in. Right. <laughs> like that little space where it doesn't have to be private. This would have been about 2003. So she did send me to a therapist who then sent me to a psychiatrist. And he was really, really good. Like he was gay and activist-minded and we just really connected. So, you know, I started taking some meds and he kept trying different things. And then I gained weight, which is how I got to the weight I still am because you just changes your metabolism and you can't get rid of it. You know, he would say to me, just like, hang on, there's a drug coming down the pipeline that I think is really going to help. And, um, you mm -hmm. know, he was really cool because he'd be like, he was going on vacation and he's like, look, if you need to call me, I can talk to you from a beautiful place. You know, it's fine. Did you ever call him? No. You never called? I don't like to intrude. I'm like too polite, I guess. No? Okay. Eventually, the new drugs, the SNRIs, came down the pipeline. And so I started those and they made a big difference. And for a while, I was okay, you know, didn't last forever. But he had to close his practice, which was a big loss. But then he had sent me to a different therapist who I still have, although she's retiring in June. But so you've been with two therapists for quite a while. I mean, if you well, the first one, not that long, because she was just like, I felt like she was projecting. She was, she was a work, an artist and a therapist. And she was just like, you know, trying to push me towards, cause I, I mean, I, I used to be very, you know, I used to make a lot of ceramic sculpture and so ah. she, she was trying to push me towards art, but I'm like, I can't live off art. You know, finally I was just like, you know, no, you're like trying to push me somewhere. I'm not. I don't want to go, you know. The psychiatrist sent me to a different therapist and, you know, I'm still with her, but she's going to mm. retire in June. It's been like 20 years or something. Wow. Yeah. So I know you attempted in 2001 or two, you had a near attempt in 2003 at the window, mm -hmm. but for the reasons you mentioned, you didn't go, you didn't. Yeah. So what about since then? So I took over the shelter with the crazy pastor as my boss. And, and I wound up standing on train platforms trying not to jump. So and, we know you, and we know you never did. I didn't. It was very difficult. One time, actually, a woman, I was standing on a sixth platform and I was crying and I was pretty close to the edge. And this woman just put her arms around me. She just hugged me. She didn't speak English. I had no idea what she was saying, but she just like hugged me. And then when the train came, she just pulled me into the train. It was like she was, I don't know, sent by... The universe or something if someone were to see you on a normal day at that train after that work when you were feeling that way would would they probably be able to know you weren't doing okay i don't know i mean that day i was crying so i think that's yeah what, like tipped her off but you know usually you do see people close to the edge trying to look for the train and whatnot those are the people who usually fall off you know yeah, I have a rule in New York. Uh, I have no idea. I'm just maybe just afraid of stuff, but my back is always against the pillar. Yeah, oh, I don't go close to the edge because you do no have people who push folks. Yeah, hell no. I'd rather yeah. wait and miss my train. I don't give a shit. Yeah. One day I was actually, I had taken a client to the psych ER, which is ironic. 
but she was she was psychotic, which is the one time I think psych ERs are somewhat helpful. So I had taken her and we were sitting there forever because we were at Bellevue, another public hospital. Mm. And they brought in a train crew that had hit some and they were there for like trauma. You know, they were. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was definitely between them and my friend, the motorman, that was taught me a lot about, you know, you don't want to do the train thing. You know, I always have these thoughts. I mean, they just are part of me. So I got some kind of uh, autoimmune thing that started affecting my spine and mm. they couldn't figure it out. And I, you know, started out with this like intense lower back pain. And then my right foot turned outward and wouldn't turn in. Like I, I lost feeling in both my feet. And then I started staggering like I was drunk. And then finally, one day I was on my way to work and I fell down in the middle of 7th Avenue and Christopher Street and I could not get up. You know, and in the meantime, you know, doctors are all like, oh, we don't know. And finally, you know, which is really scary because it's like clearly something bad is happening. And after uh, I fell, my board of directors was like, look, you got to work from home. And I was like, you guys had a meeting without me there, made this decision and you're ordering me. And so I said to them, I don't need to work from home. What I need is transportation so I don't fall down in the middle of the street. And so they gave me like rides back and forth. So, but my partner at the time, you know, she had had multiple attempts. In fact, when she finally died and I had to call her mother, her mother said, you know, I've been waiting for this for for decades. Yeah, it was the Pulse massacre happened, you know, the mass murder of all the LGBT people. That was a Sunday and she was really upset about it. Like, I mean, there were other things trying to go to school and struggling with that and whatnot, but um, that really shook her up. And so she wasn't living with me at the time. She was living in a mental health supportive housing program. We went out to dinner and I was looking at her and I could see she was slowed down. And, you know, my my work brain is like psychomotor retardation, you know, but then I'm like, I always struggled. Like I'm her girlfriend. I'm not at work right now. You know what I mean? So it was always a struggle to know like how to walk that line. So I, um, I said to her, do you have an appointment with your therapist? And she was like, yeah, I'm seeing her tomorrow. And I'm see- she was also seeing her regular doctor who she really liked. But what she didn't tell me was she also had an appointment with this fly by night pain specialist. He wound up like being kicked out of medicine because he killed, he'd already, he killed her friend too. I mean, he was just too liberal with these intense medicines. So here he is with somebody that he knows has a mental health history and he gives her like a big bottle of opioids. And so she just, you know, she did go see her therapist. She went and saw her doctor and then she went home and I had gone right from work to the first meeting of Gays Against Guns. So I'm like there pretty late. And so I, by the time I got out, I thought, oh, she's probably asleep. So I didn't call. The next day I went to work and I, it's still, and I was really busy and I didn't notice that I hadn't heard from her. And then Saturday I got up and was getting ready to go to her house because I, I was allowed to spend weekends there. And so I would go and I would cook so she would have food. And I was getting ready and her mother called me and said, have you, have you heard from her? And I said, actually, I haven't. And so we were like, what the hell? And I'm Bay Ridge. She was in Cypress Hills. So it's a good 40 minutes in a, in a cab, you know? So I just grabbed a cab and like headed over there. And on the way I got hold of her friend who lived downstairs and her friend was like, had a key cause she would babysit the cat. And she went up there. She was like, I don't think she's breathing. And that was a really uh, rough ride. I get there uh, and the front door is propped open and cops are there and everything, but there's like, you know how when they're rushing someone to the hospital, there's that chaos, that frenetic energy. There wasn't any of that. There was no rush because she was dead, you know. Okay. So, you know, I walked into I, up the stairs into her apartment. I head to the bedroom and a cop just put out his arm and stopped me as I was about to go through the door. And all I saw was her arm dangling off the bed. And he said to me, you don't want to go in there. So I kind of sat on the couch. My brain was short-circuiting, and um, he said, call her family. So I did. I called her Uncle Dave, and who she was really close to. And we used to go spend time at his house in Connecticut. And I called her mom. Then they were like, you know, you got to wait for the medical examiner to come so you can identify her. Mm. So it was a long wait, and I needed to take her cat to the vet to board because her cat was mean, and she hated me, and she wouldn't have gotten along with my cat. So we, so I called the vet and he knew her. She had worked for him for a little period. And so he was just like, 
you know, Kate, I'll stay here. You know, you bring, you know, you wait for the ME and then just bring her when you can and I'll just wait here. And the medical examiner came and he went in the room and then came out and shows me these pictures and he says they were of her tattoos. He said, her face is unrecognizable. I can hear those words even now, you know, because when she overdosed, she'd had seizures and she'd like cracked her head and was like sideways on the bed, like with her head hanging off the edge. And so all of the blood had gone into her face, you know, I did the things you have to do. But the crazy thing was I couldn't get hold of the mental health program that ran her apartment. Like, I even wound up leaving a message on their main number. And the only reason I ever got hold of them is that my friend, you know, is the director of a mental health housing program. She called the state agency that's responsible for these programs, got, and they got in touch with the ED, and then she called me. This is crazy. Like, why is there not an emergency number? Like, why can't I? You know, this is another failure of the system, right? The thing is, I, I still wonder, because that was while I was struggling to walk and getting worse. And I had been sort of the the head of the household, you know what I mean? So like, I was her rock, and I couldn't do that as much. And um, I tried. I mean, I showed up and cooked even when I had to hold onto the counter to keep from falling up. You know, the thing is that I always feel like maybe I should have told her because I was thinking about doing it. And then she did it. And I just was like, maybe I should have told her that because maybe she would have felt less alone if she knew that I don't know. You know, I was so used to keeping up this competent front together for 21 years. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, cleaning up, you know, like, we, um, I had to pack up her apartment. And when I went into the bedroom and moved the bed a little bit to get to the stuff underneath, there was a pool of blood on the floor because her head had been cracked open and hanging over the bed. There was a lot of blood on the floor. And that's another one of those images that never leaves you. For sure not. You know, even while she was in the program, I was used to falling asleep with her on the phone. Like, I'm like, I don't know how to fall asleep myself, you know? And then, like, I didn't know how to cook because I always cooked the things she liked. I still don't really know how to cook for one person. You know, my dad, my dad's gone too. So I was like, I used to cook for both of them. And then I'm like, it's just me, you know, and just every, everything you have to learn to do differently. Can I ask you a really sensitive question? Which, of course, you can say you don't want to answer, of course. I'm going to make the assumption that your ex, that your partner, tried as best she could until she couldn't. She struggled, yeah. Yeah. Made the choice she made. We don't, as far as I understand, have a way to communicate with her. We need a Ouija board. (laughs) If you were there as she was about to ingest those pills, knowing what she wanted to do, what do you do? What do you say? I mean, I just feel like if I'd said, I feel it, I feel it too. And, you know, you're not alone and this is something we can do together, just like we did everything else together, you know? Yeah. I mean, trying to fight it, not not taking the pills together, although that's also might have been an option. I mean, that's an option. And I don't have these kinds of conversations too often because the lost survivor thing doesn't doesn't come up too much. So I'm not going to ask much about it. But the other thing I was curious about, and I realize words are limiting. I know these things tend to go through all sorts of phases, and and I'm not going by the the standard five phases. Of, I'm not talking about that. But yeah, that right. that you're not exactly the same person today as you were on that day. Okay. By and large, how do you feel about her suicide? I mean, now that I have enough perspective, in a way, it's a relief because you know she was struggling so much. The time before when she had tried, I, it was the middle of the night and I got this call from the hospital, like, we don't know if she's going to make it, you better get over here, you know? And she was in the ICU. And there were many, many times she wound up hospitalized and I'd have to like run over there and all kinds of stuff, you know? And it was, it was difficult to watch and it was difficult to try to be there for her and to know what, to figure out like what to do with if anything, like like one time they'd given her steroids for her asthma and it flipped her into psychosis. Mm. I got went to visit her. She was in the medical ward for asthma, right? So I go to visit her and she's telling me our text messages are being projected onto the next lady's television screen. 
mm-hmm. and just all this shit that didn't make sense. And I'm like, do none of the medical staff notice that she doesn't make sense? And they hadn't. Bellevue, you know. So, um, I mean, I told them, I'm like, hello, she's psychotic. Like, and so she wound up in the in the ward, of course. And but she was there a long time. It took a long time to get her out of that. And while she was there, she asked me for a children's Bible. Mm. And it was really odd because she wasn't very religious. She was a Unitarian. But I so I'm at Barnes and Noble in the children's section, looking at the Bibles, and the the salesperson comes over and is like, "Oh, you know, how old is the child?" And I'm like, "38." You know, like how do you explain to somebody in the children's section that you're looking for a Bible for your partner who's gone psychotic? You know? Yeah, I have a visual of that, and it's just a strange image. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I picked one for her, and she was happy with it. So, all right. I'm going to get back to some of your stuff. Mm-hmm. You never jumped in front of a train. At some point, you lose your partner to suicide. Do you try again? So I think it's been maybe a year and a half. Things got really bad with my board of directors. I'm not going to go into detail, but like it was really bad. A guy was just pretty devastated. The suicidal thoughts were like really loud and constant, and I couldn't, it was like screaming at me, you know? I had a prescription for potassium and I just was saving them all. If your potassium levels go off, it affects your heart. Not a good thing. And uh, and so I was thinking, well, you know, maybe taking a whole lot of these pills would do it. Or my, I had syringes because I had a sick cat. And um, I was like, I could, I could dissolve them and shoot them up like you do with, yeah. So I managed not to do it, but I still have them. You still have them. Mm-hmm. And I keep adding every month when they give me more. Yeah, no, I, you know, nobody knows that but you. Well, make sure you want me to include it in the podcast. It's now, fine. I don't think people, more people are going to know, but they don't. Yeah. I don't think your podcast people are know where I am and can come throw out my stash. <laughs> I imagine that since I've started, that has happened here and there. But yes, it's rare. That, yeah, that someone so, might would randomly hear it and be like, holy shit, I know that person. I don't know if I ever asked you, I know that I asked you how you found the podcast and how you're feeling. So I know, given that you just said you're stockpiling and given everything you've shared, I know you still think about it. I'm imagining it's not infrequent. Mm-hmm. But I want to know better why you want to talk about it with not just me, but you know, it gets broadcast, if that's the right word, out to other people. I mean, I think the silence is really, I mean, I know it's been really hard for me, like the fact that people will shut you down if you even try to talk to them about it. Like, you know, like I have a good friend who's, he's a social worker and fellow activist. I've known him forever, but you know, he's just like, don't tell me that. And partly I think he's just worried about, you know, his license, blah, blah, blah. But like, I think, I don't know. It's just people just, you can't talk to people about, this is how I wound up in the psyche ER, actually. You know, I had a neighbor next door who was like really harassing me and he called the Department of Buildings to come as a form of harassment and they showed up and luckily I was in my nightgown and they were like, all right, we'll come back some some other time you're not dressed, which was strange, but lucky. But so Mm -hmm. I was completely freaking out because my house is not in great condition because I don't have a lot of money to fix stuff and it's a hundred years old, right? So it's like, I don't think this house could pass the Department of Buildings, right? So I was completely freaking out. I was freaking out with my lawyer. He was just like, I don't know, at some point he was just like, Kate, you've mentioned suicide twice in two days. And he's like, you can either go to the psyche or yourself or I'm going to call an ambulance. And I was like, I was like, whoa, you know, like I've, I've known you a long time. You're an activist. I trusted you, you know, and I, I can't have an ambulance come to my office, you know, so I um, so I walked over there and I'm just like, fuck. Probably I, I know the questions. Maybe I could talk my way out, right? Mm-hmm, sure. So I so I do the whole thing, you know. And but they they called him, and he managed to convince them somehow. Like the psychiatrist who was also gay, gay lawyer, gay. It's like you know, he comes back from talking to the lawyer, and he says, you know, your lawyer really loves you, and he's really concerned, and I can't let you leave. And it's just like, oh no, you know. And then the thing is, they didn't have any beds, of course, because they're overwhelmed so they give me two chairs you know and i had had spine surgery not that far and so spending a night on two chairs when you've had spine surgery is like excruciating like 
they could tell I was in a lot of pain because my blood pressure kept going up. And so finally they just gave me some like, I don't know what it was. I didn't ask some kind of opioid, knocked out the pain, knocked me out, you know, whatever. But but that was when the clanging doors, you know, were really getting to me because it was very much like my jail experiences, except with jail, I knew when I would get out, you know, sort of like, okay, I'm going to go before the judge and they're going to let me out, you know. The activist related stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, so how long were you in that uh, psych unit? Well, the next day, like, I had given them my therapist number, and I guess they couldn't reach her. So then the next day they reached her, and she managed to convince them that, uh, you know, she could keep me safe or whatever. So then they let me out. Oh, there's not, like, an, uh, an automatic 48-hour rule? They kept trying to get me to agree to stay for three days. And it's like a special program, EOB, the observation beds. Like, I know about it. I mean, this is the other problem, right? Is that I was terrified I was going to run into a client. Yeah. My clients are floating around the system all over the place. Or a colleague, for that matter. You know, like, actually, a good friend of mine used to be the supervising social worker there. I know the EOB program. And I said to them, look... You don't even have EOB beds down here anymore. I know they moved them all uptown and they were just like, what? (laughs) How did you know that? You're talking our language now. Okay. And the funniest thing was they said, if you stay for three days, we can give you a psychiatrist. Like it was a door prize. And I mean, I could use a psychiatrist. I haven't had one since that guy closed his practice. And, you know, my meds stopped working a while back and my primary care doc is scared to change them. He's just always, I mean, he's very sympathetic, but he's always like, you know, and he's like tried to find someone who would take my insurance that he could refer me to and wiped out. But I'm just a little stuck. Only t- only time you went to a place like that? Yeah, I'm pretty good at dodging. Yeah. Uh, how many people know that you tried to end your life in 2001 or 2002? Well, like Kate knew. My partner was also named Kate. Mm-hmm. College, we were Kate squared. Um, <laughs> and that psychiatrist knew. Okay. I'm not sure anybody else did. Did you ever tell anybody? Actually, you, you did kind of talk. I was going to ask you, like, did you ever tell people about the train or the potassium? But I kind of know the answer. Yeah. Like, the train, I think I mentioned to a couple close people, but like not the potassium because I don't want them to stop me. Well, that begs the next question. What are your plans? I don't know yet. Because there's part of me that knows that doing that would be really devastating to my clients. Mm. And you've been on the other end as well. Yeah. And my, you know, I definitely, you know, I mean, my, I have a lot of clients who deal with suicide, you can imagine. Mm. Like, we lost one. You work with young adults, people, you know, don't expect that you're dealing with people dying, but our, our clients die. Yeah. But not to suicide a lot, but AIDS especially is really bad. I'm just trying, I mean, I'm trying to hold on because I have cats. I have eight cats who depend on Wow. Oh, you're that person. You're the cat person in the old house in Brooklyn? Old big house. Okay. Now I know, it's, right? Now I get it. Yeah, yeah, I know. You didn't know it was going to turn out that way, but this is where we are. Less. I have less cats than I used to, put it okay. up. Okay. But I have enough room, you know. Yeah, no, I have no doubt that they're comfortable. You know, those are the two, right? We talked about having some kind of attachment to the Yeah world and those are my two so you know the pink purple question yeah so given what you just said you would not take it tonight tomorrow night i'd be really tempted you don't have to take a lot of those like the potassium it's just i give you a pill the color really doesn't matter but you are not in pain and it is deemed natural so nobody labels you as a suicide whatever it's just you're, you're just not alive anymore yeah, I mean, I wouldn't care about the label, except that maybe if I died some other way, it would be easier for the clients to grieve. Yeah, that's part of it. I was at a memorial service for a client like a week ago or something, and it was at the church where we used to be based. We always rent space in churches because it's cheap. It was packed, like standing room only, because she had been well-known in the community. I just suddenly found myself thinking, I know more people than this. They're not going to be able to use this space. For mine, you know, they're going to have to find a bigger space. Sort of random thought, you know? That's the thought, right? There's a lot of thoughts you could have had. That's the one. Mm -hmm. Uh, How many people do you have in your life that you can have a conversation, let's say, about your own suicidal ideation with and feel okay about it at, at a minimum? There are three, but two of them are like super busy people and not, 
you know, like if we manage to both be in the same space at the same time, we can, you know. And the third, I kind of think of him as a suicide buddy because he's a combat veteran mm. and he goes through a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, like he was shot in Afghanistan in the chest and, you know, his bulletproof vest saved him. But like you can imagine what that does to your mind, uh, right? I mean, to be honest, no, but I could, yeah, I can imagine, but not really, you know. You know, we talk about it because he goes through it and I go through it. And hopefully, you know, and sometimes we manage to like, if we're not both down at the same time, we can, like, I, I stayed up with him all night once when he was thinking about taking all his meds, like it was Veterans Day and he was freaking out. Yeah. Did you uh, uh, ever receive a diagnosis you agree with? Yeah. I mean, major depression. Common cold of psychiatry. Is that it? Yeah. Maybe you can add anxiety these days too. Sure. Who doesn't have anxiety? Oh, I mean, on. our planet is literally ending. Who who doesn't yeah. have it? You know. You're the weird one if you don't have anxiety at this point. You're like, it's not us. Um, when you think about specifically, um, you know, 2001, 2002, do you ever wish that things had turned out differently and you, you didn't make it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That would have, I mean, it just would have kept me away from a lot of very painful experiences that have happened since then. You know? Would that have meant that hate would have lost you and not you losing her? That is true. Yeah. Does anything other than I'm going to make an assumption, helping your clients and playing with your cats, because I feel like you get joy from those or some value from that. Uh, does anything help? Activism helps. Mm. But it's so, it's hard for me to do because I have, trouble standing for very long like one of my legs goes crazy and just collapses so it just makes it really hard like although i did <laughs> i did do the reclaim pride march this june which two years ago i had to do it in a wheelchair so getting there you know i'm hesitant to get arrested like especially to get picked up because you know they took three vertebrae out of my spine like i literally have a soft patch in my back because there's no bone there. The cops in New York City, especially, really rough, or they can <laughs> be. Like I've been yeah. injured by them before. Yeah. So I, you know, I just hesitate to do that now, and it's weird because it's something I've been doing since I was 15, which is amazing. Think about what I was doing. I'm 15. Like, man, that's amazing. Any myths or misconceptions about any of the things we've been talking about here today? big myth about homeless youth is that you can tell by looking. And mm. in fact, our clients go all out not to look homeless, you know, because they pick through the uh, the donations, which, you know, who can afford to give away their clothes? People with money. So they're often nice things and the clients, you know, dress up and, you know, really go to extremes to not look homeless. I had a gay dentist once who said to me, I know the kids on the pier are mostly homeless, but they have such expensive shoes on. And I said, well, that's because they came from the donation table. You know, like that's the one that comes to my mind. I want to ask you this question about you, Kate, but also about you, Kate, suicide attempt survivor. This might sound a little corny. Here's the question. What is the biggest myth about you? Oh, that's that I'm, it's so funny because I did this fucking assessment because the board brought in a consultant and all that, right? So I did this assessment where they gave my staff Ask the people who work for me and the board these questionnaires and about me, right? Huh? So terrible feeling. Yeah. Right? You know, the feedback that came back to me was all like people kept talking about how I'm always calm, even if it's an emergency and stuff. And I'm like, boy, you have no idea. That's the myth. Inside, outside. The outer face. Yeah. Tiring. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think of it like Star Trek, right? It's just like you know, shields up, but like there are all these things hitting the shields and it's like, uh-oh, what if they short circuit? I actually flipped out a couple of weeks ago. I was in the meeting with the board and the consultant. It was a four-hour meeting. I knew it was going to be difficult going in and like my my biggest supporter on the board was not able to come. He had a funeral. Mm. So I didn't, you know, have his like just vibe, you know, <laughs> to help me. And um I held it together for a couple hours, and then she did this thing where she put up a piece of paper on the wall and told everyone to put up notes about the state of the program. They were all negative. The board mm. put up, and I just started to cry. But I was trying to be like low key about it because 
other feedback had come to me that I'm like too emotional in board meetings, right? So I'm like, what do they want me to do? Like, they think I have a switch, you know, that I could just turn it off for now. I was trying to be low key about it. And then someone passed up one last thing to stick on, and it was the word reactive. And I felt like it was referring to me crying, right? And um, I just flipped out. Like, I stood up, I screamed, like, hell yes, I'm reactive. And I ran out of the room and I hid in the sanctuary and just cried. And if there had been anything in there that I could have ended my life with, I would have. I was just like out of control, you know. The sanctuary is a pretty safe place. Because <laughs> that's why they call it a sanctuary. That's you know, so it's like funny. I could have run out of the building, but when I came down the stairs, there were people in the vestibule and I didn't want to go through them. And the only other place to go from there was the sanctuary. So I ran in there. This is this building, this your your office, this building? Yeah, this building. What floor are you on? I'm on the second floor. This is a very old church uh-huh. that's mostly social services now. You're you're gonna be like sprain an ankle if you jump from the second window. That's all you're gonna. Nah. Do. Well, we can't open the windows. Look, they're stained glass. Wow, nice, nice, very nice. Do you think you're gonna listen to this when it comes out? Let's say in a few weeks. I don't know. I don't. You know, I do a lot of like media work about homeless youth. I don't listen to that. You think you'll tell anybody to listen? No. It's not, it's not my way of trying to get new listenership. I'm just curious. No, no. I didn't tell anybody I was doing this. I mean, my thing about it is I just didn't want people to get into, like, worry mode. You know, like, as soon as you mention suicide, you know, people start getting all agitated. Yeah. Well, Kate, New York City, number one, thank you very much. Sure. Would you like to add anything else? I just think, you know, if you're trying to be a supportive friend, Don't just have one conversation and then never follow up because that's what I've seen a lot of. It's like, okay, have one conversation and it's like people want to put a bow on it and say, okay, that's done. We talked. But, you know, the person's still going through this on an ongoing basis. And so it's always been a little like bothersome to me that people don't check back in. They just. They ghost you. They don't ghost you, right? That's not the right word. I don't know how to use that word, frankly. Maybe they disappear a bit. Just get on with their lives. Sure. What's the rest of your night like before we get back to our lives? Uh, I don't know. I was going to go to a memorial service. Okay. I don't think I'm going to go because now it's kind of late. What trans- This is like the third trans uh, leader who's died in the last few weeks. So, what, uh, what trains do you take to go from your office to your home? I take the A from Port Authority and then I switch at West 4th for the D to 36th Street in Brooklyn and then switch to the R for the rest of the way. I know. <laughs> yay, yay, yay. It's just the R is local, so you don't want to stay on it any longer than you have to, you know. Oh, I love when New Yorkers talk New York. Talk about subways, yeah. I'm like, I mean, you are there. You just don't get to know. Maybe you care. Maybe you don't. But I've actually been gone from New York for quite a while, so I know my stuff. But, you know, time changes things a little bit. What I'm excited about is they're building an elevator at my home station. I can walk pretty well right now, but um, when I couldn't, that was a huge barrier, you know? Like, I had to take the car service everywhere because I couldn't, like, with a rolling walker, you don't want to try the subway stairs. You just, you know, so I'm just excited because, you know, you don't know what the future's going to bring. And, like, that's one thing is I always, you know, it's like, well, when would you actually, when would you actually expect to do it? And it's like, you know, I have a, you know, chronic pain. Yeah. And it's only going to get worse. You know what I mean? Because it's a degenerative condition. So yeah. also, if the pain gets to be too much. Yeah. It's good to have a way out. It's uh, also an under-discussed subject. Oh, yeah. Chronic pain and suicide. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just chronic pain, period, but the two together. Well, I think that you and the work you do are admirable and awesome. So, um, I, and I hope that doesn't sound glib or trite. I mean it. So thanks again. Sure. You know, I love the work. That's a big reason I'm here. Yeah. I sure as shit hell could not understand how you would do it if you didn't love the work. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, you know, you're dealing with like, I have so much debt. <laughs> but, you know, you make your choices in life. Thank you again. And yeah, Ariel, you too. Have a good night. I hope you get home safe. Take care. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Kate up in. My favorite city in the world, New York. Thanks, Kate. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com. 
on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. Please check the show notes to learn more about this podcast, including our membership. And that is all for episode number 201. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I will talk to you soon.